Today, Eric Bass tells us his story of serving God in Saudi Arabia. I'm your host, Paul Horrocks, and this is the Biblical Courage Podcast. The Biblical Courage Podcast is supported by listeners. Visit biblicalcourage.com to learn more or sign up for our newsletter. I'm here with Eric Bass, who is a cross-cultural worker in Saudi Arabia. He, his wife, and his kids have lived and worked there for 10 years. And so today, Eric is going to tell us his story of living and working among people who've never heard the gospel. So Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So I want to start by having you just give us a short overview of your work in Saudi Arabia. Okay. Well, um, my wife and I have been here for, for several years together, and our goal is to see local churches planted among uh, Saudis in Saudi Arabia. In order to do that, obviously, we, we proclaim the gospel and we disciple believers to have access here. We also work with businesses, uh, help U.S. businesses uh, gain traction in Saudi Arabia. So you're working with the businesses because it gives you a reason to be in Saudi Arabia. Correct. So Saudi is a, is a closed country. Um, as probably most of your listeners are aware, they don't allow proselytization or missionaries. And so to have access to the country, we have to have another reason for being here. And so for us, that's our business endeavors. So I'm going to get to this a little bit later on some of the challenges of trying to plant a church in Saudi Arabia. But I actually want to go back to the beginning and hear a little bit about your journey to get to Saudi Arabia. So first of all, did you grow up in a Christian home? Yes. So I am a third generation cross-cultural worker. My grandparents served in Europe after World War II, the view to going towards Africa. And my parents were missionaries in Southeast Asia. So I grew up in a very missional family. Many of my cousins and nephews and, and family members have also served internationally. And so you grew up moving around a lot. Oh, yeah. Southeast Asia, Europe, the Pacific. Uh, my family moved around a bit as my father worked in, in different countries as a cross-cultural missionary. So as you grew up and got into your 20s, what made you decide, hey, I want to go into this work of serving God overseas? First of all, I, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior at a very young age. And almost from the very beginning, I knew that the Lord had something for me in a cross-cultural setting. And part of that was probably in the early years, just because that's what I knew and that's what everyone in my family did. So it seems logical that if you're a Christian, you then go abroad and you share the, the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. But as I grew into my 20s, that took on a whole another level of importance as I saw and experienced really the gap in gospel proclamation to what we call closed countries or creative access countries. Seeing that less than, you know, in the 1040 window, which is the, the section of the, the world map where most of the unreached live, I think 90% of all unreached people and 95% of all unreached people groups reside in that window of the world. And yet less than 1% of our missions giving and less than 3% of our cross-cultural missionaries actually go to that region. And so God really impressed upon me the deep need of the people in that area to hear the, the whole gospel. And, and just for anyone who doesn't know, 1040 is longitude and latitude? That's correct. It's the longitude and latitude. So if you look at the 
40th line of longitude, the 10th line of latitude. Between that, going across the globe, are where most of the unreached people groups live. And so that's the Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim countries of the world. And so somewhere along this journey, you met your wife. How did you meet her? I was 27, 28, and on my way to serve the Lord in Saudi Arabia. I was raising support, and one of the churches that I went to was rather large, and they had interns or volunteers at their church who would help missionaries with all their scheduling while they're at the church. You know, what what small group you're going to be speaking at, you know, where this is before Google Maps. So, you know, they would print out, you know, a map quest sheet for you and, and tell you where you needed to go. And and she was my minder. And so met her on, uh, I think, a Tuesday. And on a Sunday, asked her dad for permission to court her with a view towards marriage. And so, um, yeah, she she started handling my schedule 15 years ago and still doing that today. So you're looking for donations, and God gave you a bonus. Absolutely. And so five days from meeting to, hey, I think we should date seriously and, and consider getting married. Yeah, and, and since I was already on my way, it was just it was just so important to me because I had kind of already realized that there's a, a good chance that I would never meet a woman who wanted to, to give her life in this way. And it was very naive of me to not realize that God just had a much bigger plan for, for my life and her life. And so almost immediately upon meeting her, I saw the characteristics that she had and the way that the Lord had gifted her and and was moving in her heart for the nations and those aligned. And so you said, you know, seriously dating, but, but it was, it was, it was, our, our view was, it was, it was a courtship. It was, Hey, you know, we see the potential for us to spend the rest of our lives together serving the Lord. And we want to pursue him together. And if that, continues to be the case, then we'd like to eventually get married. And so it was actually from the day we met until the day we married, I think was just a calendar year, was just, you know, barely 12 months. Well, I would say a lot of people listening are probably thinking that five days takes a lot of courage, a lot of courage for you to pursue her and a lot of courage for her to say yes. And by the way, I'm willing to move to Saudi Arabia with you. So yeah, I think it's story. probably more on her part than it was on mine. I mean, I, I, you know, I had stars in my eyes. She had absolutely, um, I was absolutely enamored with her. For her, I think it was a, a bigger step. Here's this crazy guy, you know, who, who wants to do, go to this very hard place. And to be willing to, to actually consider that was, was amazing to me. But I'm, I'm glad she did. I'm glad the Lord brought us together. It's, it, I don't think, in fact, I know we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for her. A man who wants to serve God needs a woman who wants to serve God as well. It's very important. Sometimes crazy is attractive. So it worked out for you. Yeah. yeah. So when did you guys move to Saudi Arabia? We moved to Saudi Arabia about 10 years ago. So we were married. And then for the first three, four years of our marriage, um, well, the first year we were raising support. And then the next three, four years, we were in a country to the north of here, learning language, learning culture. And then about 10 years ago, we made the move to Saudi Arabia, which was always the ultimate goal. And the Lord was faithful and patient with us and helping us learn everything that we, you know, that we thought we needed to know at that point and has continued to teach us since then here in Saudi and so for people who don't know, where is Saudi Arabia geographically and, and what countries does it border? Saudi Arabia is the, really, if, if you look at it on a map, it is the physical center of what people refer to as the Middle East. 
And so if you, if you know where Egypt is and you can find Egypt and you can find Israel and, and maybe you can find Iran or Iraq, and you kind of draw a triangle, uh, the triangle will meet at the top of Saudi Arabia. It's surrounded by Yemen, Oman, Kuwait, Qatar, Iraq, Jordan. And not only is it the physical center of the Middle East, it's also the spiritual center for the Muslims of the Middle East. Mecca and Medina, the two holiest sites in Islam, are located in Saudi Arabia. And all Muslims, five times a day, bow towards Mecca and pray their salats every day. Um, so, so it is the geographical and religious center of the Middle East. And I have to say, in the Middle East, Yemen is my favorite country name. I know that it can be a very violent place, but it sounds delicious. Every time I hear yeah. Yemen, I always think to myself, if someone said, hey, what are you having for dinner? Yemen, I'd be like, hmm, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, so, Yemen is also considered to be one of the most beautiful countries in the Middle East, believe it or not. Even really? though it, it's, uh, oh yeah, even though it's, 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 a, it's a failed state, has been for you know, 50 years, it's, it's beautiful. It has beautiful beaches, great mountains, some of the world's best honey comes from Yemen. So there are yummy things out of Yemen. Uh, well, I want to talk about a little bit about the religious makeup of Saudi Arabia. Are there a lot of Christians there today? There are not. Because Saudi is the, the birthplace of Islam, is, the, is still the religious center of Islam, about 99.5% of the population is Muslim. Now, Saudi has a huge number of expats. Some of those expats, the, the laborers, the, the, the builders, they are from primarily Muslim countries like Pakistan, Egypt, the Philippines, India to some extent, and then some of the, the more skilled labor, uh, some of the, the white collar labor is from Europe. And so those people will, will be from, have different religious backgrounds. And there are some of those who are Christians and there are some Saudi Christians. There are just very few and far between. We have yet to see there be a large scale movement of people in Saudi to Christ, although Right now, uh, we are seeing more interest and more, more curiosity about the truth of the gospel from Saudis. And, and I wanted to pick up on that. Like, what do people in Saudi Arabia generally think of Christians, or why do they think someone would want to be a Christian? Well, those are two very different questions. For the most part, if someone were to convert to Christianity, the thought from, I think, a majority of Muslims will be, well, it's just because they want to be promiscuous and drink alcohol. Most Muslims, because of the way they're brought up, Saudi Muslims, I should say, because of the way they're brought up, have a very low view of Christians. And that is, to some degree, understandable because of what they see in the media and what they see in movies. You have to understand that in Islam, an Islamic society, Islam is the political system, it is the judicial system, it's the social system, and it's the religious system. So everything's rolled up into one. Whereas in the West, as we know, a liberal democratic society, Christians are typically a, a smaller part of that, and they don't make the rules for everyone. And so Muslims don't understand that, and they look at the West, and they see the movies, and they see what they see on TV, and they think that just must be the way... Christians operate. That's the way Christians think. Um, so Hollywood does so, not serve us well in portraying the gospel to the rest of the world. Oh, no, no, it, it's, it's quite problematic. Though I would say that when you explain that to most Muslims, they, they tend, or Saudi Muslims, they tend to have an aha moment. 
where they they go, okay, I understand that. And so it, it's not a huge hurdle. And sometimes it's actually a blessing that they have that view because then it gives you a very clear opportunity to share the gospel, right? So when someone says, hey, well, I see what's going on in the West. Is this, you know, the way Christians think? And, and I can say, no, here's what Christians believe. Here's what the gospel is. And a Christian is someone who believes this gospel and their life is different because of that. And it's just another opportunity then to have expose someone to the true gospel. So let's talk about why did you choose Saudi Arabia? There's obviously a lot of places you could have gone and you, and you grew up in this environment where you were uh, serving God in lots of different places. So why Saudi Arabia? That's a good question. For me, it, it wasn't so much a burning bush moment as it was just seeing the absolute lack of real concerted effort to reach Saudi Arabia. I as I came to, to understand God's heart for and God's desire for his glory among all the people of the world, I really just started looking for places where God's glory was not being proclaimed, where his goodness was not being proclaimed to people. And when I settled on Saudi, when I investigated Saudi, I just knew that that's where I was going to spend the rest of my life. In Saudi Arabia, a majority of the people, I would say 70% of the people have never met a Christian, have never seen a Bible, and have never heard the gospel articulated by a Christian. And so when we moved to our area of the city that we live in, we were the first Christians that these people had ever met. And so on one hand, when people ask me, I sometimes jokingly say, that you know, I chose Saudi because nothing else was going on, and so anything I did was was better. So the the bar was set pretty low. But in all reality, it's it's an incredible honor at times to be the first Christian that someone has ever met, and a and a high responsibility, but also the first person that's, that's ever articulated the gospel to them, and the first person who's ever offered them a Bible. So 2,000 years later, there's still plenty of opportunities to reach truly unreached people who've just never heard the good news of Jesus. Absolutely. There, there are, you know, and, and we're just scratching the surface, to, to be honest with you, in Saudi. There's probably a missionary presence in three or four cities right now. There's probably three dozen church planting missionaries in all of Saudi Arabia. It's, 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 a, it's a very needy land. It is a desert spiritually and physically. And so I want to talk about uh, where you live for a second, because I know a lot of expats that will go over there will live in an expat community where everyone with whom they're interacting most of the time are, are expats, but you actually moved into a Saudi community. To a large degree, that was, that was strategic. If you're going to reach people with the gospel, you have to live among them. And part of that is because they have to see you live your life. They have to know who you are. To, one way of explaining it is if you and I don't know each other and I challenge a belief that you have, it's easier for you to just kind of reject what I'm saying. Yet if you and I are closer and we have a relationship and there's relational capital and I challenge a belief that you have, you have to take that much more seriously. And so, yes, we, we live in a Saudi community that is comprised of primarily one tribe. 
and we invest all of our time or most of our time with them. So we go to their weddings, we go to their events, their graduations. We're really a part of the life here. And we feel that that's something that's absolutely necessary to really be able to share the gospel with people. And so let's just talk about a little bit. You go there, and I know that your goal ultimately is planting churches, but how do you even start that process? You show up in a place where no one even has heard of Jesus. How do you say, I'm going to start on day one and try to plant a church in a place like Saudi Arabia? Yeah, so, so step one is you have to learn the language. And that's a step that, that often gets overlooked. But in order to really reach people, you need to be able to do so in their heart language, language they feel and think in. And so the, the first step for us was learning Arabic. The second step is, is proclaiming the gospel all the time and looking for any opportunity you have to share the gospel. And then the, the next step is discipling believers. And then the last step is gathering them into churches. And that seems very simple, but there's a lot of you know, difficulty in each of those steps. But that's how we are, have felt led by the Lord to reach people here. So I want to talk about some of the challenges in starting a church and just evangelizing. So you, you mentioned earlier that it, it's illegal to actually proselytize in Saudi Arabia. Is it also illegal to hand out Bibles? So yeah, it, it, is, it is very difficult and it is illegal to proselytize. It is illegal to pass out Bibles. Yet it's not illegal to answer questions. There's, there's three ways that, that this works, right? First of all, we welcome people into our homes. And, and our home is, is, although it's set up culturally, like a Saudi home would be set up. We have a separate area for men than we do for women. Yet in our main visiting area of our home, we have Arabic script. We have, we have verses in Arabic script. We have a, a Bible prominently displayed. So when people come into our home, they automatically know that we are followers of Jesus, that we are Christians, that we're Masihi, we're Nasrani, we're, you know, however they want to say it, you know, Ayat al-Kitab, where we are clearly Christians among them. And that always leads to questions. And it's not illegal to answer those questions, nor is it illegal for me to personally own a Bible and have it displayed in my home. On the other hand, you know, proselytizing someone is illegal. And, and therefore, there's always that risk when you move from just merely answering questions to actively sharing and proclaiming the gospel in order to offer someone an opportunity to repent and turn to Christ. There's always that risk involved at, at that moment. Obviously, giving Bibles is illegal, yet we do that too, um, because we feel it's important for people to have a physical copy of the Bible in their hand. We believe that the word, the Lord works through his work. And so we're always very excited when a, a Muslim comes to the point where they're willing to accept a Bible and begin reading it for themselves. So you have to be clever and shrewd in order to get people to ask questions. Yeah. The Bible says that the word to be as, as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. And so we do try to be very wise in the way we share with people. And so we try to be as culturally vanilla as possible. One of the key elements, I would say, of, of sharing the gospel with a, with a Muslim is taking out our Western preconceptions and trying to avoid bringing our culture into our presentation of the gospel. At the same time, you know, being very clear with what we're saying. And sometimes that can be very difficult because they, they you know, the, one of the, the things that you will hear a lot 
is that Christians believe in three gods. We're polytheists, that we believe in sort of a holy family, you know, God, the Father, Mary, and Jesus sort of making, that's what they think the Trinity is, these three individuals from the Bible. And we have to explain, you know, when, when, you know, if we were unwise, I suppose, you know, we could become very offended and angry and, and rail against that and, and, you know, maybe condemn them for being intellectually stunted by not studying more before they say something to us. But at the same time, it's what they've been told their whole life. And so rather than being angry or argumentative, it's an awesome opportunity to bring them to the Gospel of Luke, which we have displayed in our home. And we can say, look at what the gospel says about Jesus' conception. It wasn't through some spiritual intercourse between Mary and God. This is a miracle by the Holy Spirit. And then we can also point out that the Quran says the same thing, that Jesus was conceived by the Spirit of God. And so by being wise about our responses and measured in our responses, we can build bridges with people rather than putting up walls. I did not know the Quran said that. I knew that the Quran mentioned Jesus, but I didn't know that it said that specifically. It's interesting. It says a lot about Jesus. In fact, the Quran has more written about Jesus than it does about Muhammad. Wow. Well, I want to talk about some of the risks involved in all this for not just you, but for the people to whom you're speaking and the people you're trying to disciple. So let's start with that. Now, what risk does a native of Saudi Arabia take if they say, hey, I'm going to read the Bible or I'm going to decide to actually follow Jesus? It varies from family to family. So I will say that the idea that the government would persecute believers is a little bit outdated. That is not necessarily the case. You know, the, the gospel teaches uh, Christians to obey authorities. We are to be submissive and obedient to the, the authorities that, that God places over us, even unrighteous leadership, as it says in First Peter. I think the greatest risk for a Muslim who turns to Christ or is considering Christ or is reading the Bible is really their family. Saudi is, is a shame and honor culture. And so a family might feel shamed in their community because one of their sons or daughters is reading the Bible and therefore may try to purge that shame. I think some of your listeners may have heard of and some are maybe unfamiliar with the idea of an honor killing. And an honor killing in a Muslim society is when a family feels that they have been shamed by a specific member of the family. And therefore, in order to clear that shame from them, they need to eradicate that member. And so they will seek to kill that person. And then that's not uncommon, though it is becoming less and less common in this culture. But it's a real risk that people face. In other words, we sort of hear about it on television occasionally in some circumstance overseas or, or maybe someone who uh, moved to the U.S. who comes from that culture. But this is something that is real and does really happen in Saudi Arabia. Yes. So because Islam is, is, is the totality of society, again, like I said previously, it's you know, the social structure, judicial system, uh, legal, it, it's everything rolled up into one. Because of that, someone who steps out of that really steps out of all protection of society. A lot of times, you know, a, a person's you know, home is tied to their family. Their job is tied to their family. And so if their family decides to disown them, they become unemployable, unhousable, unmarriable. And so there's a lot of risk 
involved for them in that. And, you know, the Bible's not silent about this. Jesus said that if they would kill me, what are they going to do to you? You know, Jesus said that, that you will not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, a builder doesn't begin to build a house until he's counted the cost. And so in this society, that takes on a whole nother level of meaning. Counting the cost here is much greater than it is in the West. So right away, there's a lot of economic and social risk that they're taking just to be ostracized from their community or maybe from jobs and and their family and so forth. But then on top of that, are there people you know who have been jailed or hurt for following Jesus? Yes. And, and there's, there's, there's many, many stories of that or not many, but, but there are, there are stories of that in the kingdom. We know of uh, one man whose family basically took his wife and his children away from him when they found out that they had turned to Christ, essentially what we would call kidnapped in the West. We know of another believer who warned one of his relatives that they were to be killed by the family for having turned to Christ. And he was in turn imprisoned and beaten for warning that person of the impending assassination attempt. So he wasn't, um, he wasn't and, uh, put in prison for proselytizing or for being a Christian. It was a different reason, right? He was Right. They gave the reason of kidnapping okay. because the person who he helped did not have legal authority to, make, to, to decide to move on their own. And so since he had helped facilitate that under their system, that was kidnapping. But yet, even in that suffering and that difficulty, there is an amazing end to it in that his immediate family, his wife and children saw what he did and saw the value that he placed on following Christ and what he was willing to endure for Christ and what Muslims are willing to do because of that. It could be said that he was willing to die while they were willing to kill. And because of that witness, both his wife and his children turned to Christ. And so even though he was imprisoned and he faced potentially dying, he knew that he would be restored to them in heaven. And that was an amazing testimony to God's goodness and faithfulness to him and his family. That even though he was suffering, he wasn't being protected by God from the suffering. But in that suffering, the surpassing value of Christ was seen and experienced and accepted by his wife and children. So some of this suffering and persecution is leading to effectively evangelism for certain people in the country? I think that's always the case. You know, it, it was said, and I don't remember who said it, but that the, the seeds of the church are watered by the blood of martyrs. When people see suffering and they see people willing to suffer for Christ, that inevitably has an impact on people. So I want to talk about you and your family. And what risk you're taking in being there and just trying to tell people about Jesus? How might uh, you know other communities or other um, people in where you live, how might they react to this? Um, I, I think that, that we face some of the same risk as local believers, although not to the same degree. And I, I don't want to put our risk in any way in the same category as theirs. I think most likely the worst that would happen to us is that we would be kicked out, not to make light of that. But I I think that's probably one of the greatest risks we run. There's a very limited risk that a family would be upset by what we're doing or that someone in their family is converted. 
and they could choose to then do something to us. And we do live our lives relatively transparent when it comes to this. Uh, my wife has been in a discipleship relationship where she has gone to the person she's discipling's mother and said, I just want you to know me. And, you know, you know, the decision that your daughter's made and I'm discipling her. And, and we want to be transparent and open and respectful of you in that. And so her mother's been allowed to sit in on their Bible studies. At some points, her mother's been very hostile. There's always a risk to my wife from that if some of her male relatives found out. But it has had a very positive impact on her mother's willingness to allow her daughter to continue in this on this path. So you're calling it a limited risk, but of course everything is relative, because if I tell somebody Absolutely. about Jesus in the U.S., it never crosses my mind that someone in their family might take it out on, on myself or my wife or one of my other family members. Limited is a relative thing. I'm sure that this is a real it, it, risk. It is. It is a relative term, and and I you know I don't want to be dismissive of it. At the same time, we try not to make too big of a deal of it. So I want to talk about some of the creative ways that you've been able to share the gospel with people. How are you able to engage them so that you have these opportunities? Yeah, and as I said previously, you know our home is is established in such a way. That, that people see that almost immediately when they come into our home. I think the best way to describe it are, are three ways that it happens in our ministry. One is sort of internal, what happens in our home. One is external, that which we do outside of our home. And then the third category are the amazing opportunities that God just kind of brings out of nowhere. And so, so first of all, as I said previously, you know, we, we have our home established in such a way that people come in, they see immediately that there's something different about the way our home is established. Um, at Christmas time, you know, they see the nativity scene. Our children, you know, at, at Christmas meals will tell our guests, will proclaim the gospel to our guests by telling the nativity story, you know, what's in front of them. Each one of our rooms has one of these nativity scenes. We have, again, you know, Arabic biblical art up in our home so that people automatically have things to see and ask questions about and interact with with us. Second is what happens outside of our home. So we are we live our life in a very strategic way involved in, in various community activities. They give us the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to people. They also present us with the opportunity to draw other people from churches in the West over for short periods of time to be involved in those activities. So that's something that we're really excited about and focusing on in the coming years is the opportunity to bring many more Christians in on a short-term basis to, to partake in these evangelistic outreaches with us. And finally, there are just the opportunities that God brings and drops in our laps that we, we never would have seen. Ten years ago, I said, or nine years ago, um, we had a son who was stillborn. And because he was not a Muslim and we were not Muslims, we were not allowed to bury him in the city where we lived. And so I had to go to the hospital and have him reclassified as medical waste. And then I put him in a Coleman cooler and I drove him overnight on the non-Muslim highway uh, to a city where we could bury him, where there was a, a cemetery for non-Muslims. And it was an incredibly painful and difficult time for us. Five years later, it happened again. But this time we were living in a city where we could bury our daughter this time. And we actually were able to bury her right next to her brother. 
And because we had the permission to, to bury her, we were able to invite all these Muslims to the cemetery, all these Muslims to the graveside service where we were able to proclaim the gospel. We we're able to express our hope in Christ through this difficult time. And we we're able to not only do that, but also one of the young men that I was discipling at the time took it upon himself to translate the service because I, I did it in English for all the people who were there. And he did it under the auspices of, hey, so you might want to understand what's being said. Here you go. And so it's just a, an amazing opportunity, but we would not have had the emotional intelligence, the spiritual maturity to do that if we had not already gone through that situation once before. And so the Lord, through our suffering and difficulty, created an opportunity where he could be glorified and proclaimed to people who otherwise might not hear. And it's just an amazing testimony of God's grace in a difficult time. I think that you know one of the lessons that we learned was that difficult times and, and suffering are not always something to be avoided. Sometimes it is exactly the point that God is so good and we can still be joyful even in very dire circumstances or very hard circumstances. Well, that is a really uh, difficult story. And yet at the same time, amazing that you can talk about it in a way that you see God's hand in it and you see the, um, just the opportunity to share the story of Jesus as a result of, of the pain that you and your wife and, and your family went through. So I want to just turn to some of the successes So tell us what has gotten you excited in terms of where you have seen some success in uh, discipling people and and just in in this mission of trying to plant churches in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So first of all, I, I think from a macro perspective, I think that the population is becoming much more open to Christianity. I think the events in the Middle East going back 25 years but even since the, the Arab Spring has really caused people to question what they've been told their whole life. And so they're more willing to hear and listen. 70% of the population, 69% of the population of Saudi Arabia is under the age of 30. Can you imagine? And so really, there, there, there is a majority of the population um, that is at an age where they're really questioning and wanting to hear other perspectives. And so on that level, I think that we're seeing much more openness. On the other hand, every year we see more opportunities to share the gospel. I had a young man over at my house the other night and we were doing some some work together. And you know, he had talked about how the activities that we were doing just really build trust. And I thought that was a an odd statement. And then he came and then afterwards we sat down on the porch and had a glass of water. And he started to ask me about the gospel, asked me what I believed and why I believed it and what the Bible said, allowed me to download the Bible onto his phone and share with him from the Bible what God says. So we, we've had each of these are, are incredible um, victories. We, we perceive them as in, incredible victories. Very early on in our ministry, the Lord allowed us to be a part of him drawing a young woman to himself for salvation. Unfortunately, she had to flee the country and has never been able to return. But yet we were able to see that at the very beginning and see God draw someone to himself. You know, my wife and I are both involved in discipling relationships where we're seeing young believers grow in their faith and, and learn to share their faith in a respectful way with their family and friends around them. 
Well, it's incredible the work that you're doing uh, and just your willingness and your wife's willingness to go and to do this in a place where there are unreached people, where there is a hostility to Christianity. Uh, It's just amazing. And I'm sure some people listening want to learn more. So I want to ask you, if somebody does want to learn more and support your ministry, how can they do that? Um, Well, if they want to learn more, um, they can email you. And you can pass that information on to them. Obviously, we want to be sensitive uh, about our anonymity. So that, that would be going to bib- biblicalcourage.com and filling out our contact form. Correct. And, and we really encourage people to do that. You know, the, the, the primary way we want people to be involved in our ministry is by considering really being a part of it, coming over. Like I said, there, there are opportunities, short-term opportunities for people to come over and, and be a part of what we're doing for a week or two weeks. And it, and it really would be impactful and helpful. If people you know, want to support the ministry, they can go to allegrosolutions.org. And on the drop-down menu, they can select to give to Gospel to Arabia 001. That's Gospel, the number two, Arabia 001. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. So terrific. Well, I will add, uh, again, biblicalcourage.com. Go to the contact section and just fill it out and um, mention Eric and this mission to um, Saudi Arabia. And then I'll pass your information on and certainly visit that website if you want to support them as well. So Eric, thank you so much for your time and just your ministry and just sharing some of the uh, tough parts as well as some of the successes you've had. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to tell people about what the Lord is doing in this part of the world. The Biblical Courage podcast is supported by listeners. You can support us by going to biblicalcourage.com. While you're there, you can also sign up to receive our newsletter. That's biblicalcourage.com. If you liked the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you didn't like the podcast, we encourage you to see a doctor.